Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. We're going to talk about uh, two topics on this episode. First, the downfall of the Invest in Ed ballot initiative, which passed as Prop 208 this past November, but was recently struck down by the courts. And we'll talk about so what that means for the future of education funding in Arizona. And then I also want to touch on the Republican primary for governor, how it's shaping up, and whether any candidate uh, besides Carrie Lake has a chance to, to win and represent the Republican Party in Arizona in 2022. Let's start with the, just a brief history of Prop 208. It started as Invest in Ed, which launched... Uh, basically as a piggyback on the Red for Ed movement in 2018. In my opinion, this progressive initiative stifled any chance of the rank-and-file teachers to take ownership over a movement that had claimed to be a nonpartisan effort to raise money for schools by any method possible. But that's ancient history now. The first initiative had issues with the way it was written. The courts revoked it before it got to the voters. The second uh iteration of this initiative, um, of this progressive tax hike, was passed by the voters in 2020, but was struck down by the courts because of a technical issue of how it was written. So the first question, and we don't need to get into all the, I know it's very complicated uh, legal stuff, but you know the Prop 208 supporters take issue with the court rulings on both, um, on both of the striking down uh, both the first time when it did not get in the ballot and the second time when it passed. Um, they think the law should have been allowed to go to the ballot and and should have been upheld this time um, after it passed. <clears throat> and conservatives will blame the authors of the initiative for ignoring the you know legal advice and, and, and screwing up the details of the drafting. So who is right um, on just the interpretation of, of what happened? I guess it's maybe the, the blame game, but... But uh, what's your sense on that? I, I actually divide the issue. Um, I, I think the court uh, in striking it down was partially right uh, and uh, partially uh, incorrect in terms of the remedy. Um, where the court was, I think, unquestionably right uh, is uh, that the proposition could not, through a statutory initiative, override or change a constitutional limitation uh, that voters approved in 1980 to create an aggregate limit on overall um, K through 12 spending from state and local sources. Which is the reason why it got struck down this time after, after it passed um, voters voted yes. And then after, after the fact, a lawsuit said you can't, spend this money because it goes over the aggregate limit. Well, the, what the court, the, the proposition purported by statute to exempt the money from the aggregate expenditure limit. Uh, the court correctly, in my judgment, said, uh, no, you can't by statute create an exemption to something that's in the state constitution. That's just, that's just um, legal principles 101. Um, The court then said that if the money couldn't be spent because it would exceed the aggregate expenditure limit, uh, then it couldn't be collected. 
Uh, in there, I think the court got it wrong. Um, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't squirrel away money that uh, can't be spent. Um, and uh, the legislature could have authorized the expenditures. They didn't have to, but they could have authorized the expenditures. Or a future initiative, if the money had accumulated and not been spent, uh, could have uh, been made to amend the Constitution and the limit to permit it. Um, so uh, I believe that the court got it, got the problem right, but the remedy of striking it down entirely uh, wrong. Um, but it was a majority of the court. It's not going to change its mind. Uh, and very firm instructions were handed down to a superior court judge to make the factual determination as to whether indeed the expenditures would exceed uh, the constitutional limit. And recently, a, the Superior Court judge opined that indeed it, it would, and, and that's not really anything in dispute. Do you, so would you, but would you blame the, the is there a blame to be put on the drafters of this initiative? I know like the first time there was, you know, pretty clear errors it was questionable whether, you know, you, you could interpret either way, whether it should have been allowed to go to the, to the voters, but the, the, there was clear drafting things that they could have done differently with the, um, with how they, I think it was how they separated the tax brackets or whatever. But this time, this time, do you think, how much blame do you think is fair to put on the drafters for having to, it would have been, would have been possible to write it in a way that would have, um, cleared this up in a, in a different way or was it just hey we had to in order to try to get this done we had to, to write it in this way hopefully it 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 snakes through the the legal process i, I think it clearly uh was a mistake uh, by the drafters uh it was clear that you couldn't create a constitutional exemption uh through a statutory initiative i wrote that prior to the election it, it wasn't uh, anything that snuck up on anyone. It was a conscious uh, choice. What the um, Invest in Ed coalition would have had to have done uh, was to run two initiatives. Uh, one, to create the tax and, and earmark where the money was going. And a second constitutional change to exempt the proceeds uh, from the limit. Obviously, it's tougher and more expensive to try to pass two measures uh, rather than one. Um, but uh, in my judgment, they made a conscious choice uh, when the futility of that was self-evident. So moving on to the second question, I'll do a little lead up here to this one, but um, about staying on the, on the topic of, of 208. Um, so to progressives and, and supporters of 2A took issue with this, you know, gloating, gloating by the conservatives after the court struck down this initiative the second time. And it just it's just pretty evident that there is some bad blood between between these sides here, sort of like the business community and conservatives and sort of the, you know, pro public education, what what became this invest in Arizona um coalition um 
<clears throat> that it's not just, you know, it's, it's, it's more than just sort of natural differences on policy. It's like the history of these political fights is, has seemed to get a little bit personal. And like, I don't know how it, I don't know what the, what the start of it was. You know, I think maybe in this specific fight over this specific issue, you know, I think maybe, um, you know, maybe it started with the, with the red Fred side, <laughs> I think, you know, people sometimes forget that the leaders of Red Fred launched the strike, you know, after Ducey had um, proposed his 20% pay, pay increase for teachers. Uh, at that time, it was 2008. He said, hey, I'll, here's a plan. Uh, I see that you're about to strike. I see that you're upset. Here's a plan to, to raise teacher salaries by 20% over a couple of years, 20 by 2020. And to many people, myself included, this seemed like, um, you know, it seemed like pretty partisan and unfair to sort of strike in response to that. That it's like, okay, the governor sees this, he sees the politics of it or whatever his reasoning was, but he's giving in. He's giving in to the number one, you know, quote unquote demand of this of this movement. And it's like, oh, it's not enough. He's so it seemed like, okay, from their perspective, from the conservatives' perspective, from Ducey's perspective, it's like these these this these this crowd is never gonna compromise, they're never gonna give any credit, they're never gonna they're just gonna always attack me and think it's not enough. So so you know, and then we've got these back and forth from this couple rounds of this initiative. So so it just seems like the 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 bad blood is is there, but you know, going going into this election year, it seems like you've you've um, you've lo- you've brought up this idea of a great bargain that there is enough money in the system to to raise taxes for for education funding. So is <laughs> is bad blood going to be the 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 main obstacle to this compromise? And it seems like the invest in ed. You know, I just watched on 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 some of the. Uh, talk shows. The Bram Resnick show had um, a spokesman for the Invest in Arizona coalition saying, "Hey, we're you know we're kind of on we're on we're on board with this idea. We we see now that there's enough money in the system as it is to to raise funding without uh, raising taxes. So the issue doesn't seem to be on that end. Um, do you think Republicans are going to go for this? What do you think they're thinking about this?" What's in it for them? You know, what? Why not do this? What's the risk for the Republicans for uh, for putting this thing together? There's no question that there's bad, bad blood uh, and uh, mutual distrust. Uh, it's also um, the case that we have a very unusual opportunity uh, here in Arizona, where um, tax rates income tax rates can both be reduced and an increase in K-12 education funding roughly in the vicinity of what Prop 208 uh, would have produced uh, can also be appropriated on an ongoing basis and in a voter-protected way um, without jeopardizing the um, financial stability of the state or running a substantial risk of a uh, deficit. I, um, there, there has been some uh, previously mild but now stronger expression of interest 
uh, in that grand bargain by the uh, some elements of the Invest in Ed coalition. Um, there doesn't seem to be that much interest among Republican lawmakers, and it's a mystery to me. I mean, you've got uh, door A, uh, which is what they're working on, uh, where you unilaterally vacate the referendum that the Invest in Ed Coalition um, succeeded in doing and putting the previously enacted income tax rate reduction on the ballot this November. Vacate that, um, create an even bigger uh, tax cut, uh, and call it a day. Uh, well, it's it, going through door A, uh, you're highly likely to have another referendum for it to go to the ballot in November anyway, for there to be millions of dollars spent on both sides, and in my judgment, a very strong likelihood uh, that uh, the tax rate reduction uh, is rejected by voters. I mean, voters just uh, agreed uh, to a very large increase in income tax rates to fund education. I don't understand the basis for believing uh, that two years later, they will go for a big tax cut uh, without an increase in K through 12 education. Now, if you want to walk through door B, which I think is available to them, and there's at least mild interest in it uh, by the Invest in Ed Coalition, uh, you uh, get your income tax cut. Uh, it goes into effect this year, uh, and there's no organized political opposition to it. You don't run any risk of having a ballot measure for which you're going to have to raise millions of dollars and likely lose. So uh, why Republican lawmakers would choose to go through door B rather than door A uh, is a mystery to me. But right now, um, the uh, impetus is to go charging through uh, door A, which I think will end up leaving income tax rates exactly where they are. So the, so what I, what I can think of is, okay, maybe they're saying, maybe they think, um, maybe the Republicans think we don't need that much money in education. Maybe they, maybe they think, look, we can do this a lot more efficiently. Maybe we could do a more private private school, like micro school things. Maybe we just don't fund it as much as they as people think we need to, and and just try to do it way more efficiently. I mean, the only the only other explanation I can think of is it's just a partisan thing of, of we don't want to give in to this crowd, um, or, or it's like a uh, we we think it'll be better to for our base for the twenty twenty two elections to say, hey, we were the tough guys. We, we, uh, you know, we stuck it to the edu we stuck it to these progressive well, the voter education folks. The, the voters have already expressed support for the increase in K-12 funding uh, that Prop 208 uh, would have provided. They won the election. Um, and uh, you would have to really, really, really not want to give the schools more money uh, in order to choose the far more difficult route to achieving the income tax cut that you want. Now, it's a little bit easy for me because I like both sides of the equation. 
I support the income tax cut. I support the increased funding for education. Um, but given the primacy uh, that Republicans give uh, to um, reducing the income tax as much as possible, uh, the ability to implement that uh, without facing political opposition and a public vote, uh, you have to really, really not want to fund education more uh, in order to jeopardize that gain uh, and pursue what is, by any reasonable political analysis, likely a losing strategy of fighting fights that they've already uh, lost. And, and I don't think that you can make much of a case that um, we're spending all we need to spend on K-12 uh, education. Well, they might say, they might say, well, we, you know, we're going over this cap all the time. We, why do we have to raise well, the they, cap all so much if we've, if, you know, obviously we've been spending a lot on education. The, the Republican legislative record on increasing funding for education is actually pretty good and significantly better than uh, they are giving uh, credit for. We are spending more on an inflation-adjusted per-pupil basis in Arizona on K through 12 education than we have at any time in the state's history. Uh, but that keeps us uh, near the bottom of the states uh, in terms of uh, funding education. And you still have serious financial strains occurring in all of the, all of the schools. No one, and we'll, there remain serious uh, funding uh, issues. Um, so I, I don't know, um, the, the, and that's part of the bad blood. There's a feeling among Republican legislators that they get beat up over education funding and not, uh, given adequate credit for the gains that they have been made. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's for me, that's the, if the, if the feeling is we can give all, we can give this money, we can, we can do this compromise and they're still going to. Democrats are still going to attack us every time for not uh, for not doing anything for funding education, that, and that's been my go ahead. And that's just, I mean, that's just been my frustration, you know, as trying to be a, in the beginning, trying to be a part of this Red for Ed movement when they said it was a nonpartisan thing. It's like, okay, why don't we support Republicans and 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 thank them when they actually do something that you know is is wanted. And then you have something like, you know, Kate Brophy McGee, who, um, you know, your colleague Elva Diaz wrote an article saying, this is back in 2018, that she, uh, you know, that she should have been um, Red for Ed champion. You know, they should have been thanking her for 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 making the deal of Prop 301 and 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 being a being a Republican education, you know public education um, supporter but uh you know what did that what did that coalition do they launched a huge campaign to defeat her and they did you know they did defeat her and now they they, they don't have then that now that coalition doesn't really have allies in um in the in the senate i guess i guess maybe paul boyer is doing some some effort at so that's, I mean, that's just maybe the maybe the the, the sticking point is. But it's is, it's not as though the Republicans are going to give up their political objectives if the grand bargain 
uh, takes place. Uh, yes, after that happens, the Invest in Ed Coalition uh, will continue um, thumping for more funding for K-12 education, even with the uh, $750 million a year additional that I proposed in uh, my outline of the grand bargain. Uh, we'll still be near the bottom of, of the state. So, so they will continue advocating for it. They will continue to try to uh, get uh, Democrats whom they perceive are friendly towards education uh, elected rather than Republicans. On the other hand, uh, the Republicans in the legislature will continue to work to reduce the income tax rates even further uh, and will seek to win um, swing districts with whatever arguments and money they can uh, mount. So the idea of the grand compromise isn't to um, settle these issues once and for all. It's to take advantage of the moment, um, give each side what they want most right now, and at least not fight for it for one election cycle. <laughs> So rather than having a ballot measure debate over what the income tax rate would be, have a serious reduction in the income tax uh, rates go into effect without, without yeah. political opposition. Increase K-12 funding by $750 million or so a year uh, to, to basically give what Prop 208 would have delivered to K-12 education. Um, enjoy the mo momentary uh, victory for both sides, uh, and then go back to fighting. Um, but but yeah. because you're because you're going to fight in the future, uh, why give up the easy way to gain what you want right now when the opportunity presents itself? That's the mystery too. Yeah, yeah, and I guess you know we've um, mistakenly been calling it a compromise. It's not. It's not even a compromise. It's a it's a win-win, right? Correct. It's, it's both both sides, sides get all of what they want. Both sides get what they want. Yeah. So, so we'll see. We'll see. We'll see if anything. If this session, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens, and we'll see what. I'd be interested. Either way, I'd be interesting to see what. If it, if the grand bargain happens, you know, or the, or if it doesn't, what 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 the what it does to the, in the campaign trail, you know, you know, coming up or, or what, what future deals might, might come together or future coalitions. Uh, before we end here, I do want to touch on, um, something that I've just been really interested in, which is the primary for, for the, for the governor, governor primary, gubernatorial primary in Arizona on the Republican side. Cause it's, I'm not sure if you see any echoes of, of 2016, with Trump running against some other people. But I just think it's interesting. Like Carrie Lake is the, you know, sort of the Trump clone, like copying every, every style, except for maybe, I don't think she has a sense of humor, but, but just the attacks, personal attacks, brutal, uh, lying, personal attacks, like, attacking the media in a very vicious and mean-spirited way and 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 winning. <laughs> and so what do you think? Is it is it a done deal? Does Carrie Lake have the have the primary in the bag? Is it 
Is it, um, you know, what do you see parallels to 2016 with, with the Trump race? And do you think it's, do you think it's in the, it's done now? Do you think it's Carrie Lake's going to win? I, I do not think it's done. I think we have a long way to go. Um, and uh, one of the questions is whether Carrie Lake will have the same Teflon coating um, where gaffes uh, that would destroy the political careers of others um, uh, do not affect her the way that it did not affect Trump in 2016. She's not Donald Trump, uh, and uh, I'm doubtful that her Teflon coating uh, will be uh, as uh, secure and impenetrable uh, as Trump's uh, was. And I think she's shown herself to be um, gaff prone. Um, she called for cameras in the classroom, which is uh, an out there idea that that didn't float very well, and, and she kind of retreated for it. I think she's made a serious error in filing an amicus brief in support of the position taken by the Arizona Republican Party uh, that uh, mail balloting in Arizona is unconstitutional and should be abolished. Um, my guess is that probably at least 70% of the primary voters in, in the Republican primary this year uh, will choose to vote by mail. Uh, and uh, chasing uh, the mail ballots with uh, a direct mail campaign saying, uh, Carrie Lake didn't think you should be able to cast this ballot, uh, I think has enormous potential. And we're still early in the election cycle. She's got a long way to go. Uh, but does that, but does that stuff even matter? I mean, do the policies even matter to, to Republican primary voters? I mean, they voted for, I mean, Donald Trump was just a, was a, you know, to me, he was just a pure vibe, you know, pure, just, just, uh, just sort of, a angry you know i mean donald trump was a they're, they're attacking Kerry lake for like supporting obama back in or you know 2008 or something but it's like trump supported hillary clinton and and, and gave money to her uh campaigns trump was a east coast liberal you know it, and, and he became a cult figure in the republican party and and, and by the way Carrie, you know, Karen Taylor Robeson, Matt Salmon, the whole Republican establishment, you know, claims to still support, claims to have supported and, and continues to support Trump. I just don't, I just, it just, I don't understand how you try to uh, beat Carrie Lake on these policy issues when, Well, male voting know, isn't, she, is, is more than a policy issue. It's telling people that you can't vote the way that you've been voting for, for decades. Um, but but they but they've convinced the Republican voters that the, that the whole election is fra is fraudulent. Well, like, but but I don't think that and no, and no one's and no one's challenged. It's like not not a single, you know, Ducey hasn't challenged it except for maybe like whispering to to George Will. None none of the none of the uh, primary challengers to Lake have even challenged her on the fact that have challenged Lake on the fact that. She thinks the whole 2020 election is fraud and that the whole election scheme is illegitimate. But I, and she's but, winning the primary. She, she is ahead in the polls 
uh, in the primary. We have a long way to go. Um, and I think that um, relitigating the 2020 election, which they're all doing, uh, is different than saying that people ought not to be able to use the method of balloting uh, that they've been using for decades and are quite uh, comfortable with. There's other ways to achieve greater ballot security rather than saying we're going to abolish all mail balloting. And I don't, Donald Trump in my judgment is a unique political persona. Uh, and he was able during that primary and general election season uh, to withstand gaffes that would have sunk any other candidate. While Carrie Lake is currently riding and cater, catering to the same sentiment that supported Trump, I'm not yet convinced that she has the same immunity uh, from the effects of her actions and statements uh, that Trump enjoyed. Um, we'll, we'll see. I just don't, I don't think that she will enjoy the same immunity from scrutiny. Uh, and consequences of her actions uh, that Trump enjoyed in 2016. Do you think it would take either Salmon or Robeson dropping out and supporting the other person, like consolidating these two oppositions? Do you think that's what it's going to take? I mean, the Steve Gainer is in as well, but I'm not, I mean, he doesn't seem to factor in any of the polls that I've seen. Do you think it would take a, a coalition opposition, so it's just almost a one-on-one, -on -one? Um, or do you think that one of those two, Salmon or Robeson, can can consolidate a plurality by August? It, it, August is it, one of the primaries. It, it depends upon how much uh, Lake blows herself up and loses her control of uh, the Trump vote. Uh, if if it slips a little, then it would be easier to defeat her if there was only one more mainstream uh, challenger, even though neither one of them are acting like mainstream uh, Republican Republicans at this point. Um, uh, if she slips a lot, then I think one of them could sneak to the front of a um, plurality uh, victory. But no, are they even attacking her on the, on the early voting thing? I mean, it seems like I haven't seen either of them. I haven't seen either of them attack her on Lake's position on early voting. If they don't, they are booting a tremendous political opportunity, which given their focus on trying to appear to be sufficiently Trumpian, um, they may very well do. Yeah. Well, I don't think Lake can beat Hobbs. I hope not. I mean, <laughs> I mean Trump, Trump, Trump beat Clinton, but geez, I don't know. And are these Republicans going to get? Is this establishment? Is it going to be the same thing like 2016? That's the other thing. It's like Donald Trump completely, partially humiliated Ted Cruz, called out his wife, called his wife ugly, attacked his dad, and then Ted Cruz just became his. I mean, Ted Cruz uh, just completely absorbed himself into the service of Donald Trump like every other Republican. Is that what's going to happen if, if Lake wins this primary? 
Are, are, is, is, is team Robeson going to just all of a sudden convert to team Lake and, and try to beat uh, Hobbs? There, there will be support for the nominee. There, there always is. If you enter into the fray, you sort of have an implied obligation to support uh, the winner of the primary. Um, but I don't think what either of Robeson or Salmon might do in defeat uh, will matter much. Uh, there is a stronger Republican never Trump vote uh, than appears in the polls. We saw it manifest itself during the 2020 election. And, and Trump is a repellent to um, independent voters. Um, so I think, uh, although this will be a big or shaping up to be a big Republican year, and the Republican nominee uh, should have an easy trot into the governor's uh, seat. Um, I don't think if Lake is the nominee that she will have an easy path, and I believe it will be possible for the Democratic nominee uh, to defeat her in a general election um, because she's not going to be able to shed or pivot uh, from the all-Trump campaign and persona that she's pursued and adopted. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And as a as a never Trumper, I would I would also be a never Lake. You know, never Lake. It's just frustrating. But maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll see the tide turn at some point um, beyond this madness in the Republican Party. Who knows? Um, or maybe maybe we'll see a, a write-in campaign, or a, I don't know. I'm still hoping for an independent. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see what happens in in these in these lot, long long ways to go. There is um, other campaigns um, happening that we'll we'll touch on on this podcast. Uh, thanks everybody for listening to the Political Notebook. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, um, Spotify anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Thank you.